Chapter 10 of Creative Unity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. Creative Unity by Rabindranath Tagore. An Eastern University. In the midst of much that is discouraging in the present state of the world, there is one symptom of vital promise. Asia is awakening. This great event, if it be but directed along the right lines, is full of hope, not only for Asia herself, but for the whole world. On the other hand, it has to be admitted that the relationship of the West with the East, growing more and more complex and widespread for over two centuries, far from attaining its true fulfillment, has given rise to a universal spirit of conflict. The consequent strain and unrest have profoundly disturbed Asia, and antipathetic forces have been accumulating for years in the depth of the Eastern mind. The meeting of the East and the West has remained incomplete, because the occasions of it have not been disinterested. The political and commercial adventures carried on by Western races, very often by force and against the interest and wishes of the countries they have dealt with, have created a moral alienation which is deeply injurious to both parties. The perils threatened by this unnatural relationship have long been contemptuously ignored by the West, but the blind confidence of the strong in their apparent invincibility has often led them from their dream of security into terrible surprises of history. It is not the fear of danger or loss to one people or another, however, which is most important. The demoralizing influence of the constant estrangement between the two hemispheres, which affects the baser passions of man, pride, greed, and hypocrisy on the one hand, fear, suspiciousness, and flattery on the other, has been developing and threatens us with a worldwide spiritual disaster. The time has come when we must use all our wisdom to understand the situation and to control it with a stronger trust in moral guidance than in any array of physical forces. In the beginning of man's history, his first social object was to form a community, to grow into a people. At that early period, individuals were gathered together within geographical enclosures. But in the present age, with its facility of communication, geographical barriers have almost lost their reality, and the great federation of men which is waiting either to find its true scope or to break asunder in a final catastrophe is not a meeting of individuals, but of various human races. Now the problem before us is of one single country, which is this earth, where the races as individuals must find both their freedom of self-expression and their bond of federation. Mankind must realize a unity, wider in range, deeper in sentiment, stronger in power than ever before. Now that the problem is large, we have to solve it on a bigger scale, to realize the God in man by a larger faith, and to build the temple of our faith on a sure and worldwide basis. The first step towards realization is to create opportunities for revealing the different peoples to one another. This can never be done in those fields where the exploiting utilitarian spirit is supreme. We must find some meeting ground where there can be no question of conflicting interests. One of such places is the university, where we can work together in a common pursuit of truth, share together our common heritage, 
and realize that artists in all parts of the world have created forms of beauty, scientists discovered secrets of the universe, philosophers solved the problems of existence, saints made the truth of the spiritual world organic in their own lives, not merely for some particular race to which they belonged, but for all mankind. When the science of meteorology knows the Earth's atmosphere as continuously one, affecting the different parts of the world differently, but in a harmony of adjustments, it knows and attains truth. And so too, we must know that the great mind of man is one, working through the many differences which are needed to ensure the full result of its fundamental unity. When we understand this truth in a disinterested spirit, it teaches us to respect all the differences in man that are real, yet remain conscious of our oneness, and to know that perfection of unity is not in uniformity, but in harmony. This is the problem of the present age. The East, for its own sake, and for the sake of the world, must not remain unrevealed. The deepest source of all calamities in history is misunderstanding, for where we do not understand, we can never be just. Being strongly impressed with the need and the responsibility, which every individual today must realize according to his power, I have formed the nucleus of an international university in India as one of the best means of promoting mutual understanding between the East and the West. This institution, according to the plan I have in mind, will invite students from the West to study the different systems of Indian philosophy, literature, art and music in their proper environment, encouraging them to carry on research work in collaboration with the scholars already engaged in this task. India has her renaissance. She is preparing to make her contribution to the world of the future. In the past, she produced her great culture, and in the present age, she has an equally important contribution to make to the culture of the new world, which is emerging from the wreckage of the old. This is a momentous period of her history, pregnant with precious possibilities, when any disinterested offer of cooperation from any part of the West will have an immense moral value the memory of which will become brighter as the regeneration of the East grows in vigor and creative power. The Western universities give their students an opportunity to learn what all the European peoples have contributed to their Western culture. Thus the intellectual mind of the West has been luminously revealed to the world. What is needed to complete this illumination is for the East to collect its own scattered lamps and offer them to the enlightenment of the world. There was a time when the great countries of Asia had, each of them, to nurture its own civilization apart in comparative seclusion. Now has come the age of coordination and cooperation. The seedlings that were reared within narrow plots must now be transplanted into the open fields. They must pass the test of the world market if their maximum value is to be obtained. But before Asia is in a position to cooperate with the culture of Europe, she must base her own structure on a synthesis of all the different cultures which she has. When, taking her stand on such a culture, she turns toward the West, she will take, with a confident sense of mental freedom, her own view of truth from her own vantage ground, and open a new vista of thought to the world. Otherwise, she will allow her priceless inheritance to crumble into dust, and, trying to replace it clumsily with feeble imitations of the West, make herself superfluous, cheap, and ludicrous. 
if she thus loses her individuality and her specific power to exist will it in the least help the rest of the world will not her terrible bankruptcy involve also the western mind if the whole world grows at last into an exaggerated west then such an illimitable parody of the modern age will die crushed beneath its own absurdity in this belief it is my desire to extend by degrees the scope of this university on simple lines until it comprehends the whole range of eastern cultures the aryan semitic mongolian and others its object will be to reveal the eastern mind to the world of one thing i felt certain during my travels in europe that a genuine interest has been roused there in the philosophy and the arts of the east from which the western mind seeks fresh inspiration of truth and beauty once the east had a reputation of fabulous wealth and the seekers were attracted from across the sea since then the shrine of wealth has changed its site but the east is famed also for her storage of wisdom harvested by her patriarchs from long successive ages of spiritual endeavor and when as now in the midst of the pursuit of power and wealth there rises the cry of privation from the famished spirit of man an opportunity is offered to the east to offer her store to those who need it once upon a time we were in possession of such a thing as our own mind in india it was living it thought it felt it expressed itself it was receptive as well as productive that this mind could be of any use in the process or in the end of our education was overlooked by our modern educational dispensation we are provided with buildings and books and other magnificent burdens calculated to suppress our mind the latter was treated like a library shelf solidly made of wood to be loaded with leather-bound volumes of second-hand information in consequence it has lost its own color and character and has borrowed polish from the carpenter's shop all this has cost us money and also our finer ideas while our intellectual vacancy has been crammed with what is described in official reports as education in fact we have bought our spectacles at the expense of our eyesight in india our goddess of learning is saraswati my audience in the west i am sure will be glad to know that her complexion is white but the signal fact is that she is living and she is a woman and her seat is on a lotus flower the symbolic meaning of this is that she dwells in the center of life and the heart of all existence which opens itself in beauty to the light of heaven the western education which we have chanced to know is impersonal its complexion is also white but it is the whiteness of the whitewashed classroom walls it dwells in the cold storage compartments of lessons and the ice-packed minds of the schoolmasters the effect which it had on my mind when as a boy i was compelled to go to school i have described elsewhere my feeling was very much the same as a tree might have which was not allowed to live its full life but was cut down to be made into packing cases the introduction of this education was not a part of the solemn marriage ceremony which was to unite the minds of the east and west in mutual understanding it represented an artificial method of training specially calculated to produce the carriers of the white man's burden this want of ideals still clings to our education system though our universities have latterly burdened their syllabus with a greater number of subjects than before
but it is only like adding to the bags of wheat the bullock carries to market. It does not make the bullock any better off. Mind, when long deprived of its natural food of truth and freedom of growth, develops an unnatural craving for success. And our students have fallen victims to the mania for success in examinations. Success consists in obtaining the largest number of marks with the strictest economy of knowledge. It is a deliberate cultivation of disloyalty to truth, of intellectual dishonesty, of a foolish imposition by which the mind is encouraged to rob itself. But as we are by means of it made to forget the existence of mind, we are supremely happy at the result. We pass examinations and shrivel up into clerks, lawyers and police inspectors, and we die young. Universities should never be made into mechanical organizations for collecting and distributing knowledge. Through them, the people should offer their intellectual hospitality, their wealth of mind to others, and earn their proud right in return to receive gifts from the rest of the world. But in the whole length and breadth of India, there is not a single university established in the modern time where a foreign or an Indian student can properly be acquainted with the best products of the Indian mind. For that, we have to cross the sea and knock at the doors of France and Germany. Educational institutions in our country are India's arms bowl of knowledge. They lower our intellectual self-respect. They encourage us to make a foolish display of decorations composed of borrowed feathers. This it was that led me to found a school in Bengal. In face of many difficulties and discouragements, and in spite of my own vocation as a poet, who finds his true inspiration only when he forgets that he is a schoolmaster. It is my hope that in this school a nucleus has been formed, round with an indigenous university of our own land, will find its natural growth, round which an indigenous university of our own land will find its natural growth, a university which will help India's mind to concentrate and to be fully conscious of itself, free to seek the truth and make this truth its own wherever found, to judge by its own standard, give expression to its own creative genius, and offer its wisdom to the guests who come from other parts of the world. Man's intellect has a natural pride in its own aristocracy, which is the pride of its culture. Culture only acknowledges the excellence whose criticism is in its inner perfection, not in any external success. When this pride succumbs to some compulsion of necessity or lure of material advantage, it brings humiliation to the intellectual man. Modern man, through her very education, has been made to suffer this humiliation. Once she herself provided her children with a culture which was a product of her own ages of thought and creation. But it has been thrust aside, and we are made to tread the mill of passing examinations, not for learning anything, but for notifying that we are qualified for employments under organizations conducted in English. Our educated community is not a cultured community, but a community of qualified candidates. Meanwhile, the proportion of possible employments to the number of claimants has gradually been growing narrower, and the consequent disaffection has been widespread. At last, the very authorities who are responsible for this are blaming their victims. Such is the perversity of human nature. It bears its worst grudge against those it has injured. It is as if some tribe which had the primitive habit of decorating its tribal members with birds plumage were one day to hold these very birds guilty of the crime of being extinct there are belated attempts on the part of our governors to read us pious homilies about disinterested love of learning while the old machinery goes on working 
whose product is not education but certificates. It is good to remind the fettered bird that its wings are for soaring, but it is better to cut the chain which is holding it to its perch. The most pathetic feature of the tragedy is that the bird itself has learned to use its chain for its ornament, simply because the chain jingles in fairly respectable English. In the Bengali language there is a modern maxim which can be translated, he who learns to read and write rides in a carriage and pair. In English there is a similar proverb, knowledge is power. It is an offer of a prospective bribe to the student, a promise of an ulterior reward, which is more important than knowledge itself. Temptations held before us as inducements to be good or to pursue uncongenial paths are most often flimsy lies or half-truths, such as the oft-quoted maxim of respectable piety. Honesty is the best policy, at which politicians all over the world seem to laugh in their sleeves. But unfortunately, education conducted under a special providence of purposefulness, of eating the fruit of knowledge from the wrong end, does lead one to that special paradise on earth, the daily rides in one's own carriage and pair. And the West, I have heard from authentic sources, is aspiring in its education after that special cultivation of worldliness. Where society is comparatively simple and obstructions are not too numerous, we can clearly see how the life process guides education in its vital purpose. The system of folk education which is indigenous to India but is dying out was one with the people's life. It flowed naturally through the social channels and made its way everywhere. It is a system of widespread irrigation of culture. Its teachers, specially trained men, are in constant requisition and find crowded meetings in our villages where they repeat the best thoughts and express the ideals of the land in the most effective form. The mode of instruction includes the recitation of epics, expounding the scriptures, reading from the Purans, which are the classical records of old history, performance of plays founded upon the early myths and legends, dramatic narration of the lives of ancient heroes, and the singing in chorus of songs from the old religious literature. Evidently, according to this system, the best function of education is to enable us to realize that to live as a man is great, requiring profound philosophy for its ideal, poetry for its expression, and heroism in its conduct. Owing to this vital method of culture, the common people of India, though technically illiterate, have been made conscious of the sanctity of social relationships entailing constant sacrifice and self-control, urged and supported by ideals collectively expressed in one word, dharma. Such a system of education may sound too simple for the complexities of modern life, but the fundamental principle of social life in its different stages of development remains the same, and in no circumstance can the truth be ignored that all human complexities must harmonize in organic unity with life, failing which there will be endless conflict. Most things in the civilized world occupy more than their legitimate space. Much of their burden is needless. But bearing this burden, civilized man may be showing great strength, but he displays little skill. To the gods, viewing this from on high, it must seem like the flounderings of a giant who has got out of its depth and knows not how to swim. The main source of all forms of voluntary slavery is the desire of gain. It is difficult to fight against this when modern civilization is tainted with such a universal contamination of avarice. I have realized it myself in the little boys of my own school. 
For the first few years there is no trouble, but as soon as the upper class is reached, their worldly wisdom, the malady of the aged, begins to assert itself. They rebelliously insist that they must no longer learn, but rather pass examinations. Professions in the modern age are more numerous and lucrative than ever before. They need a specialization of training and knowledge, tempting education to yield its spiritual freedom to the claims of utilitarian ambitions. But man's deeper nature is hurt. His smothered life seeks to be liberated from the suffocating folds and sensual ties of prosperity. And this is why we find almost everywhere in the world a growing dissatisfaction with the prevalent system of teaching which betrays the encroachment of senility and worldly prudence over pure intellect. In India also, a vague feeling of discontent has given rise to numerous attempts at establishing national schools and colleges. But unfortunately, our very education has been successful in depriving us of our real initiative and our courage of thought. The training we get in our schools has the constant implication in it that it is not for us to produce but to borrow and we are casting about to borrow our educational plants from European institutions. The trampled plants of Indian corn are dreaming of recouping their harvest from the neighboring wheat fields. To change the figure, we forget that, for proficiency in walking, it is better to train the muscles of our own legs than to strut upon wooden ones of foreign make, although they clatter and cause more surprise at our skill in using them than if they were living and real. But when we go to borrow help from a foreign neighborhood, we are apt to overlook the real source of help behind all that is external and apparent. Had the deep-water fishes happened to produce a scientist who chose the jumping of a monkey for his research work, I am sure he would give most of the credit to the branches of the trees and very little to the monkey itself. In a foreign university, we see the branching wilderness of its buildings, furniture, regulations and syllabus. But the monkey which is a difficult creature to catch and more difficult to manufacture, we are likely to treat as a mere accident of minor importance. It is convenient for us to overlook the fact that among the Europeans, the living spirit of the university is widely spread in their society, their parliament, their literature, and the numerous activities of their corporate life. In all these functions, they are in perpetual touch with the great personality of the land, which is creative and heroic in its constant acts of self-expression and self-sacrifice. They have their thoughts published in their books, as well as through the medium of living men, who think those thoughts and who criticize, compare and disseminate them. Some, at least of the drawbacks of their academic education, are redeemed by the living energy of the intellectual personality pervading their social organism. It is like the stagnant reservoir of water, which finds its purification in the showers of rain to which it keeps itself open. But, to our misfortune, we have in India all the furniture of the European university except the human teacher. We have, instead, mere purveyors of book lore in whom the paper god of the bookshop has been made vocal. A most important truth which we are apt to forget is that a teacher can never truly teach unless he is still learning himself. A lamp can never light another lamp unless it continues to burn its own flame. The teacher who has come to the end of his subject, who has no living traffic with his knowledge, but merely repeats his lessons to his students, can only load their minds, he cannot quicken them. Truth not only must inform, but inspire. If the inspiration dies out, and the information only accumulates, then truth loses its infinity. 
the greater part of our learning in the schools has been wasted because for most of our teachers their subjects are like dead specimens of once living things with which they have a learned acquaintance but no communication of life and love the educational institution therefore which i have in mind has primarily for its object the constant pursuit of truth from which the imparting of truth naturally follows it must not be a dead cage in which living minds are fed with food artificially prepared it should be an open house in which students and teachers are at one they must live their complete life together dominated by a common aspiration for truth and a need of sharing all the delights of culture in the former days the great master craftsmen had students in their workshops where they cooperated in shaping things to perfection that was a place where knowledge could become living that knowledge which not only has its substance and law but its atmosphere subtly informed by a creative personality for intellectual knowledge also has its aspect of creative art in which the man who explores truth expresses something which is human in him his enthusiasm his courage his sacrifice his honesty and his skill in merely academical teaching we find subjects but not the man who pursues the subjects therefore the vital part of education remains incomplete for our universities we must claim not labeled packages of truth and authorize agents to distribute them but truth in its living association with her lovers and seekers and discoverers also we must know that the concentration of the mind forces scattered throughout the country is the most important mission of a university which like the nucleus of a living cell should be the center of the intellectual life of the people the bringing about of an intellectual unity in india is i am told difficult to the verge of impossibility owing to the fact that india has so many different languages such a statement is as unreasonable as to say that man because he has a diversity of limbs should find it impossible to realize life's unity in himself and that only an earthworm composed of a tail and nothing else could truly know that it had a body let us admit that india is not like any one of the great countries of europe which has its own separate language but is rather like europe itself branching out into different peoples with many different languages and yet europe has a common civilization with an intellectual unity which is not based upon uniformity of language it is true that in the earlier stages of her culture the whole of europe had latin for her learned tongue that was in her intellectual budding time when all the petals of self-expression were closed in one point but the perfection of her mental unfolding was not represented by the singularity of her literary vehicle when the great european countries found their individual languages then only the true federation of cultures became possible in the west and the very differences of the channels made the commerce of ideas in europe so richly copious and so variedly active we can well imagine what the loss to european civilization would be if france italy and germany and england herself had not through their separate agencies contributed to the common coffer of their individual earnings there was a time with us when india had her common language of culture in sanskrit but for the complete commerce of her thought she required that all her vernaculars should attain their perfect powers through which her different peoples might manifest their idiosyncrasies and this could never be done through a foreign tongue in the united states in canada and other british colonies the language of the people is english 
it has a great literature which had its birth and growth into the history of the british islands but when this language with all its products and acquisitions matured by ages on its own mother soil is carried into foreign lands which have their own separate history and their own life growth it must constantly hamper the indigenous growth of culture and destroy individuality of judgment and the perfect freedom of self-expression the inherited wealth of the english language with all its splendor becomes an impediment when taken into different surroundings just as when lungs are given to the whale in the sea if such is the case even with races whose grandmother tongue naturally continues to be their own mother tongue one can imagine what sterility it means for a people which accepts for its vehicle of culture an altogether foreign language a language is not like an umbrella or an overcoat that can be borrowed by unconscious or deliberate mistake it is like the living skin itself if the body of a draught horse enters into the skin of a racehorse it will be safe to wager that such an anomaly will never win a race and will fail even to drag a cart have we not watched some modern japanese artists imitating european art the imitation may sometimes produce clever results but such cleverness has only the perfection of artificial flowers which never bear fruit all great countries have their vital centers for intellectual life where a high standard of learning is maintained where the minds of people are naturally attracted where they find their genial atmosphere in which to prove their worth and to contribute their share to the country's culture thus they kindle on the common altar of the land that great sacrificial fire which can radiate the sacred light of wisdom abroad athens was such a centre in greece rome in italy and paris is such today in france banaras has been and still continues to be the centre of our sanskrit culture but sanskrit learning does not exhaust all the elements of culture that exist in modern india if we were to take for granted what some people maintain that western culture is the only source of light for our mind then it would be like depending for daybreak upon some star which is the sun of a far distant sphere the star may give us light but not the day it may give us direction in our voyage of exploration but it can never open the full view of truth before our eyes in fact we can never use this cold starlight for stirring the sap in our branches and give color and bloom to our life this is the reason why european education has become for india mere school lessons and no culture a box of matches good for the small uses of illumination but not the light of morning in which the use and beauty and all the subtle mysteries of life are blended in one let me say clearly that i have no distrust of any culture because of its foreign character on the contrary i believe that the shock of such extraneous forces is necessary for the vitality of our intellectual nature it is admitted that much of the spirit of christianity runs counter not only to the classical culture of europe but to the european temperament altogether and yet this alien movement of ideas constantly running against the natural mental current of europe has been a most important factor in strengthening and enriching her civilization on account of the sharp antagonism of its intellectual direction in fact the european vernaculars first woke up to life and fruitful vigor when they felt the impact of this foreign thought power with all its oriental forms and affinities the same thing is happening in india the european culture has come to us not only with its knowledge but with its velocity then again let us admit that modern science is europe's great gift to humanity for all time to come
we in india must claim it from our hands and gratefully accept it in order to be saved from the curse of futility by lagging behind we shall fail to reap the harvest of the present age if we delay what i object to is the artificial arrangement by which foreign education tends to occupy all the space of our national mind and thus kills or hampers the great opportunity for the creation of a new thought power by a new combination of truths it is this which makes me urge that all the elements in our own culture have to be strengthened not to resist the western culture but truly to accept and assimilate it to use it for our sustenance not as our burden to get mastery over this culture and not to live on its outskirts as the hewers of texts and drawers of book learning the main river in indian culture has flowed in four streams the vedic the puranic the buddhist and the jain it has its source in the heights of the indian consciousness but a river belonging to a country is not fed by its own waters alone the tibetan brahmaputra is a tributary to the indian ganges contributions have similarly found their way to india's original culture the muhammadan for example has repeatedly come into india from outside laden with its own stores of knowledge and feeling and this wonderful religious democracy bringing freshet after freshet to swell the current to our music our architecture our pictorial art our literature the muhammadans have made their permanent and precious contribution those who have studied the lives and writings of our medieval saints and all the great religious movements that sprang up in the time of the muhammadan rule know how deep is our debt to this foreign current that has so intimately mingled with our life so in our centre of indian learning we must provide for the coordinate study of all these different cultures the vedic the puranic the buddhist the jain the islamic the sikh and the zoroastrian the chinese japanese and tibetan will also have to be added for in the past india did not remain isolated within her own boundaries therefore in order to learn what she was in her relation to the whole continent of asia these cultures too must be studied side by side with them must finally be placed the western culture for only then shall we be able to assimilate this last contribution to our common stock a river flowing within banks is truly our own and it can contain its due tributaries but our relations with the flood can only prove disastrous there are some who are exclusively modern who believe that the past is the bankrupt time leaving no assets for us but only a legacy of debts they refuse to believe that the army which is marching forward can be fed from the rear it is well to remind such persons that the great ages of renaissance in history were those when man suddenly discovered the seeds of thought in the granary of the past the unfortunate people who have lost the harvest of their past have lost their present age they have missed their seed for cultivation and go begging for their bare livelihood we must not imagine that we are one of these disinherited peoples of the world the time has come for us to break open the treasure trove of our ancestors and use it for our commerce of life let us with its help make our future our own and not continue our existence as the eternal rag-pickers in other people's dustbins so far i have dwelt only upon the intellectual aspect of education for even in the west it is the intellectual training which receives almost exclusive emphasis the western universities have not yet truly recognized that fullness of expression is fullness of life 
and a large part of man can never find its expression in the mere language of words. It must therefore seek for its other languages, lines and colors, sounds and movements. Through our mastery of these, we not only make our whole nature articulate, but also understand man in all his attempts to reveal his innermost being in every age and clime. The great use of education is not merely to collect facts, but to know man and to make oneself known to man. It is the duty of every human being to master, at least to some extent, not only the language of intellect, but also that personality which is the language of art. It is a great world of reality for man, vast and profound, this growing world of his own creative nature. This is the world of art. To be brought up in ignorance of it is to be deprived of the knowledge and use of that great inheritance of humanity, which has been growing and waiting for every one of us from the beginning of our history. It is to remain deaf to the eternal voice of man that speaks to all men the messages that are beyond speech. From the educational point of view, we know Europe where it is scientific or, at best, literary. So our notion of its modern culture is limited within the boundary lines of grammar and the laboratory. We almost completely ignore the aesthetic life of man, leaving it uncultivated, allowing weeds to grow there. Our newspapers are prolific, our meeting places are vociferous, and in them we wear to shreds the things we have borrowed from our English teachers. We make the air dismal and damp with the tears of our grievances. But where are our arts? which, like the outbreak of spring flowers, are the spontaneous overflow of our deeper nature and spiritual magnificence. Through this great deficiency of our modern education, we are condemned to carry to the end a dead load of dumb wisdom. Like miserable outcasts, we are deprived of our place in the festival of culture, and wait at the outer coat, where the colors are not for us, nor the forms of delight, nor the songs. Ours is the education of a prison-house, with hard labor and with a drab dress cut to the limits of minimum decency and necessity. We are made to forget that the perfection of color and form and expression belongs to the perfection of vitality, that the joy of life is only the other side of the strength of life. The timber merchant may think that the flowers and foliage are mere frivolous decorations of a tree, but if these are suppressed, he will know to his cost that the timber too will fail. During the Mughal period, Music and art in India found a great impetus from the rulers, because their whole life, not merely their official life, was lived in this land. And it is the wholeness of life from which originates art. But our English teachers are birds of passage. They cackle to us, but do not sing. Their true heart is not in the land of their exile. Constriction of life, owing to this narrowness of culture, must no longer be encouraged. In the centre of Indian culture, which I am proposing, Music and art must have their prominent seats of honor and not be given merely a tolerant nod of recognition. The different systems of music and different schools of art which lie scattered in the different ages and provinces of India and in the different strata of society and also those belonging to the other great countries of Asia which had communication with India have to be brought there together and studied. I have already hinted that education should not be dragged out of its native element the life current of the people. Economic life covers the whole width of the fundamental basis of society, because its necessities are the simplest and the most universal. Educational institutions, in order to obtain their fullness of truth, must have close association with this economic life. 
the highest mission of education is to help us to realize the inner principle of the unity of all knowledge and all the activities of our social and spiritual being. Society in its early stage was held together by its economic cooperation when all its members felt in unison a natural interest in their right to live. Civilization could never have been started at all if such was not the case, and civilization will fall to pieces if it never again realizes the spirit of mutual help and the common sharing of benefits in the elemental necessaries of life. The idea of such economic cooperation should be made the basis of our university. It must not only instruct, but live, not only think, but produce. Our ancient tapawans, or forest schools, which were our natural universities, were not shut off from the daily life of the people. Masters and students gathered fruit and fuel, and took their cattle out to graze, supporting themselves by the work of their own hands. Spiritual education was a part of the spiritual life itself, which comprehended all life. Our centre of culture should not be the only centre of the intellectual life of India, but the centre of her economic life also. It must cooperate with the villages around it, cultivate land, breed cattle, spin cloths, press oil from oil seeds. It must produce all the necessaries, devising the best means, using the best materials, and calling science to its aid. Its very existence should depend upon the success of its industrial activities, carried out on the cooperative principle, which will unite the teachers and students and villagers of the neighborhood in a living and active bond of necessity. This will give us also a practical industrial training whose motive force is not the greed of profit. Before I conclude my paper, a delicate question remains to be considered. What must be the religious ideal? that is to rule our centre of Indian culture. The one abiding ideal in the religious life of India has been mukti, the deliverance of man's soul from the grip of self, its communion with the infinite soul through its union in anand with the universe. This religion of spiritual harmony is not a theological doctrine to be taught, as a subject in class, for half an hour each day. It is a spiritual truth and beauty of our attitude towards our surroundings, our conscious relationship with the infinite, and the everlasting power of the eternal in the passing moments of our life. Such a religious ideal can only be made possible by making provision for students to live in intimate touch with nature, daily to grow in an atmosphere of service offered to all creatures, tending trees, feeding birds and animals, learning to feel the immense mystery of the soil and water and air. Along with this, there should be some common sharing of life with the tillers of the soil and the humble workers in the neighboring villages, studying their crafts, inviting them to the feasts, joining them in works of cooperation for communal welfare, and in our intercourse we should be guided not by moral maxims or the condescension of social superiority, but by natural sympathy of life for life, and by the sheer necessity of love's sacrifice for its own sake. In such an atmosphere, Students would learn to understand that humanity is a divine harp of many strings, waiting for its one grand music. Those who realize this unity are made ready for the pilgrimage through the night of suffering, and along the path of sacrifice to the great meeting of man in the future, for which the call comes to us across the darkness. Life in such a center should be simple and clean. We should never believe that simplicity of life might make us unsuited to the requirements of the society of our time. 
It is the simplicity of the tuning fork, which is needed all the more because of the intricacy of strings in the instrument. In the morning of our career, our nature needs the pure and perfect note of a spiritual ideal, in order to fit us for the complications of our later years. In other words, this institution should be a perpetual creation by the cooperative enthusiasm of teachers and students, growing with the growth of their soul, a world in itself, self-sustaining, independent, rich, with ever-renewing life, radiating life across space and time, attracting and maintaining round it a planetary system of dependent bodies. Its aim should lie in imparting life-breath to the complete man, who is intellectual as well as economic, bound by social bonds, but aspiring towards spiritual freedom and final perfection. The End End of Chapter 10 Read for you by Chiquito Craster, Birmingham, Alabama End of Creative Unity by Rabindranath Tagore